All right, good evening. Welcome to Hope Lower Town. Um, I'm fighting a fever right now, an actual one, so uh, I'm going to get through this. <laughs> uh, I have no idea what I'm going to say, but I will get through it. No, I'm kidding. I will get through it, but I know what I'm going to say. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate what Tim had to say about uh, difficult things. I think there's times where uh, those of us maybe, well, whatever, I don't worry, whether you're, you're new to Christianity, checking out Christianity, asking questions about what you believe and why you believe it, and, and man, if this is true in the Bible, I don't know if I could be a Christian, and, and then sometimes reading things, and then kind of like even today's passage where it just kind of makes you scratch your head, and, you, and you, you, it's okay to ask those questions. I know I, I did uh, in the plagues and the death of the firstborn son. I really struggled with that, um, but what I always come back to is God is good. Um, regardless of, of where I'm at and the questions that I'm asking. And so uh, we're going to be dealing with a little bit of a, a difficult topic tonight um, for, for kind of half of it and uh, hopefully uh, give a little bit of, of resolution to, to that and what this passage brings up. So that being said, um, you ever been blindsided? Like maybe you've been hit in a car accident. I've never been in a car accident, so I don't really know what that's like. But just, just T-boned, you know, come out of nowhere, uh, grew up, you know, playing football, I remember in college, we were actually at the, what was the Metrodome, and it's not impressive. There was like 50 fans there that day. Um, and, and I was playing defensive end, and I've got one job, just don't let anyone get outside of me. And the wide receiver, it's called the crackdown block, and no idea, didn't see him coming. And this little, little man sent me flying across the field and my defensive coach saw it and uh, benched me the rest of the game uh, for getting blindsided. Um, maybe it's um, a little bit more serious, maybe just somebody from work uh, stabbing the back, um, that kind of thing. I remember when I was a little kid, my dad, uh, we were moving and he was a pastor and so he, he said, you know, don't, don't tell anybody we're moving, I want to make sure that it goes to the proper channels and well, I had a best friend, you know, and so I've got to tell my best friend. And that night, my dad got a phone call from his dad because uh, my best friend had blabbed, and I felt blindsided, but then my dad felt blindsided by, by me, just not telling anybody. And I think we've probably all been there, and that's going to happen to the Israelites tonight, that they are wandering in the wilderness. They've been wandering for quite some time now, uh, a couple months, and they're going to get uh, blindsided by uh, an, another army, uh, a, an opposing people group and ethnicity and um, so yes yeah, so this is a chapter dot chapter chapter 17 but week 22 of uh, going through Exodus and so we're going to go into uh, Exodus 17 uh, looking at verses uh, 8 through 16 and um, looking at how God fights the battle for the Israelites um, just public service announcement in case you don't know there is cold water over here on this side feel free at any time to to, to go grab some, because I know it's, it's warm in here. We call it the Great Minnesota Get Together, right? The Great Minnesota Sweat Together. This is kind of the mini Minnesota Sweat Together on Sunday nights here. The senior pastor, Bill uh, Anglin, here at First Baptist, said that the, the weather in here is always the day after what it was yesterday, right? So it, it's Saturday in here is what he said. So even though it was only like, you know, in the 70s and cloudy today, eh, it doesn't matter in here. It doesn't matter one bit. So, Okay. All right, first question is, who are the Amalekites? Who are these, uh, this, this people group that are going to come and fight against the Israelites? And so um, 
They're called the Amalekites, and we're going to kind of, I just want to give a little bit of history of, of where they come from. This is going back to Genesis chapter 36, verse 12. It says, Esau's son Eliphaz also had a concubine named Tinma, uh, who bore him Amalek. All right, so, the, so Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Uh, which might not mean anything, but Esau is Jacob's brother. So in, in, in Israelite history, there's Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And Jacob is the second son. Jacob means deceiver. And they're twins. And Jacob is born uh, holding the heel of Esau, who is born. And Esau is kind of this manly man. Um, and Jacob, to deceive his father, to get the birthright, actually puts uh, sheep wool on his arms because Esau was so hairy, uh, which just sounds disgusting. But apparently that tricked his blind father into thinking that he was his brother and uh, from his hairy arms and said, I want the birthright. And so Jacob, or excuse me, Isaac then gives Esau, or excuse me, uh, Isaac gives Jacob the birthright and it causes, as you can imagine, a, a huge rift in the family. Uh, Esau would have been given everything. Man, I keep switching these names up. Uh, can you follow me? Okay, my mind's trying to, trying to figure this out. Jacob uh, is given all of the possessions instead of Esau. And so there's some bad blood between these brothers to a point where later on in their life as they're adults and they're, they're, uh, they have their own tribes and their own possessions and, and wealth and they're coming to meet, and, and Jacob sends out a huge gift before him and then takes his party and his tribe and actually splits it in two, and he says, if Esau is going to kill me and all the people that are with me, maybe then half my people will still survive. And uh, that doesn't happen. Esau shows some favor. But that's, that's the descendants. So there's kind of this bad blood between the, uh, the, 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 the line of Esau versus the line of Jacob. And one of Esau's grandsons, Amalek, uh, is going to be a very wicked individual who's going to start his own people group and turn into the, the Canaanites, which maybe you've heard of before. Okay, let's keep going here. Oh, sorry, I've got a couple quotes. Let me read these. Moses did not mention the reason for the Amalekites' attack on Israel. Okay, so there's not a whole lot of background between why the Amalekites uh, would, have, would have fought him. It says, but even in his very first, even his very first readers would have known something of the history of enmity against Israel that carried on through Esau-Jacob rivalry described in Genesis and something of the uh, Amalekite modus operandi, just how they operated in general as a people group. Amalek was a grandson of Esau, and his descendants organized, them, organized themselves into uh, very early national nomadic uh, people groups that, that would travel. They didn't set up, they didn't build towns. They would travel around that lived partly by attacking other population groups and plummeting their wealth. Uh, the Amalekites had domesticated the camel and used its swiftness effectively to surprise attacks. Not only did the Amalekites attack Israel at Rephidim, which we'll see uh, in a minute here, but a year later they attacked them at Horam and when the Israelites had been driven out of southern Canaan and were on their run after their foolish attempt to enter the promised land in spite of God's command through Moses that they could not. So God says, don't go in there. They say, hey, they're going to try anyways. Amalekites um, defeat them there. The Amalekites may have traveled further south on this occasion than was a usual habit in order to attack the Israelites, perhaps because they had heard that Israel was far away from any population center and relatively defenseless. The fact that in the ensuing encounter, the Israelites lost the Amalekites except when Moses kept his staff of God elevated, which we will uh, read here in just a minute. 
Okay, so where did they come from? As he just said, they, they would have kind of come from the, the northeast of where they were, kind of down at Mount Sinai area in the, in the Rephidim region. And uh, they come from that Canaan area, although they didn't dwell in Canaan, but they would have traveled around. And so they, they kind of came out of nowhere. And, and in my study, it kind of put me down this random rabbit hole of our horses faster than camels. And, uh, and I would have bet a lot of money that horses were faster than camels, but I guess I'm wrong on a couple different levels. I guess the fastest sprinting horses are faster than the fastest camel, okay, if that makes sense. So I'm talking about, like, if you go to Canterbury Park, they're probably faster than race camels. I don't know if there are race camels, but maybe there, I'm sure there are. Um, and, uh, but interesting facts, someone, some, some article somewhere I read that camels can run 45 miles an hour. I have a hard time believing that. That just seems a little far-fetched. Um, I think horses' top speed are around 30, so that just seems quite significant. However, when it comes to a horse's speed and quickness, they're quicker, but a camel's endurance is ridiculous. Uh, that I was reading that they can run 10 miles an hour for over 18 hours straight without having to stop for water, right? So just, just going, okay? So 180 miles they could have traveled, which would have easily covered this ground. Um, and so anyways, there's some speculation uh, as to how big the party was. Was it, a, was it a, a little group that came out and saw and then left and then they came back with the whole army? We don't know, but we know they're given just one uh, day to prep an army. So that's what happens. God says to put an army together and do it quite quickly. So he says, uh, Moses said to Joshua, Joshua is going to be a really big player in the book of Exodus, but he's just kind of hey, there's this guy, Joshua, that pops on the scene here. Um, he's kind of described as uh, Moses' younger um, kind of assistant later on in the book. And uh, he's introduced, and he's kind of the, the general, if you want to call that, but they didn't have an army, so he wasn't, didn't have a permission or a position like that. Um, so Moses says to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Um, the way it's worded here in this translation kind of makes it seem like Joshua would have had his pick and he could have just said, uh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, okay, you're going, you're going. That wouldn't have been the case. There wouldn't have been a whole lot of people who would have been able to fight. Um, later on, we learned that in Israel, it was usually uh, men between the age of 20 and 50 uh, that would have fought uh, in, their, in their wars. And so this would have been a small group of people that were physically able and capable of fighting, and they wouldn't have had any weapons. They were just slaves. So they wouldn't have had a whole lot of weapons, and if they did, they were manufactured in the wilderness, and they probably weren't that great of, great of a quality, just a wild guess. So they're supposed to put together this little army, and then we see that Moses prays to God. And there's a little bit of stretch here. Some of the commentaries are back and forth on this. Is he praying? What's going on here exactly? Um, that his hands are lifted to God in, in a posture of prayer, but you can still pray to God with your arms at your side. Um, but clearly God does something powerful. It says, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And this staff, has, God has used the staff with Moses many times with providing water, uh, parting the Red Sea, turning the river, river Nile into blood, all these different things. And so this isn't just assumed that Moses just was like, oh, I'll go do this magic trick with this cool staff that God gave me. We need to understand that Moses is in continual communication with Yahweh. And so he comes to him and says, what are we going to do? And apparently this is what God tells him, go and stand on top of the hill with the staff that I've given you, which he has said multiple, multiple times. Okay, 
the battle belongs to the Lord. So I want to I just draw three conclusions from the passage that we're about to read here. It's verses 10 through 13. It says this, So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. So he's got this staff in his hands. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and the other side, so that his hands remained steady, steady until sunset. And then because of that, Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with the sword. Okay, so what's going on? It's this posture of prayer, possibly. But what we see from this are three simple observations. All right, we see it is not the strength of the army that wins the war. Okay, we already know that. We know it's a smaller army. We know they don't, they're not a people group that is known for warfare. The Amalekites, it's all they know. So it's not the strength of the army that wins the war. It's not even the strength of the leader, Moses. Right? He couldn't even do it on his own. You can imagine these two guys standing next to him holding their arms, propping it up so he can uh, hold his staff over his head. Uh, and his reliance on God that wins the war, it is God alone. Even though we cooperate with him that wins the war, that is the Israelites. And, and for me, and I think for, for a lot of us, um, there are the, the, the problem, the problem, the, where our mind starts to run to with this passage is God uses people and war to destroy another people that's not that religion. Okay, it's this idea of holy war. We just saw this, right? We, we just saw God wiping out the Egyptian army, and I don't think it raises the same question. God, through supernatural, miraculous ability, takes the Red Sea and covers up Pharaoh and his army. But in this case, God uses people and war to destroy another people group, religion, ethnicity. And that's when we start asking questions, which I think they're good questions. Because I think in our climate right now, I don't, I don't care, I really do not care where you are politically on a lot of different things that are happening in our culture right now. Is it something that we can do as Christians, open up the Bible and justify war, right? That's kind of the question. At least justify holy war. I think that's a whole other question, like just war or World War II. What are we talking, right? Are we talking holy war? Can I say in the name of God, we're going to go out? So we, I do want to talk about that for a little bit. But before I do that, I want to finish the passage just kind of something small, but it is very significant to remember the victory against the enemies of God. That that's what we're going to see here. And, and as we look at the Amalekites, who were they? They were literally a people group that did everything they could to thwart God's plan. That, that Israel was God's plan of redemption. And this people group says, we wanted to destroy them. We want to end your plan of redemption. So let's remember. Let's take a a sign of remembrance and lift it up. Okay, so Yahweh said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. All right, and then listen to what he says here, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And it's interesting here because he's not talking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blot out Amalek. 
from the history books because he just said write down his name in the book, right? So he's not saying I'm going to completely wipe out this people group, but I am definitely going to make sure that this people group doesn't stop my plan of redemption in history. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and called it Yahweh is my banner or Yahweh is my um, my flag post is, is more of a, a sign that this would have been. Um, that he's my, my sign of remembrance. We sing this, and come thou fount of every blessing. Uh, here I raise my Ebenezer. It's this sign of remembrance, and that's what Moses is doing with this altar. Uh, he said, and this is why he calls it the Lord is my banner, and he says, because hands were lifted up against the throne of Yahweh, talking about the Amalekites, and Yahweh will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And we're going to see the Amalekites show up over and over and over again in the history of the Israelites. Um, That they consistently and constantly try to thwart God's plan for his people. Okay. I want to quickly look at can holy war be justified? Can we take the idea, and, and I don't know what maybe comes to your, to your mind, mentally, and what is the image that you see or, or do you think of when you hear or think about holy war? This was a, an image I found of this battle, of, of the Canaanites and the Israelites fighting, and you can kind of see Moses at the top there with his arms lifted up, and it's, it's battle. It's gruesome. There's bloodshed and death. And it may remind you of maybe something like this, Crusades. Looks like a very similar battle scene, except you've got Christians fighting Muslims. Was this justified? And I'll give you the short answer is no. But I want to explain why biblically and what we find in Scripture of looking at a people group and a religion of the Israelites to say it's okay for us to do this because God told us to do this. And why is that different from anybody? I don't care who they are in any part of the world coming up and saying, I'm justified in my actions here of fighting this war because God wills it. Um, I want to read through some holy war principles. I'm going to have a hard time reading that, but I'm going to do my best. uh, This was not too often do Steve and I, Pastor Steve, talk about uh, our sermons uh, and this is one that, that we chatted about, and I, I had this, like, 12 really long slides, and he just kind of was like, that's a lot of words. <laughs> I, I simplified it. So I'm, I'm using his uh, abridged version from Douglas Stewart. Uh, he's got a lot more that he says about all this that I was going to just read because it was really good, but I'll read this, just kind of these bullet points, and just make some comments on it. These are holy war principles for the Israelites. The only country that this was ever justified for and justified with was the Israelites in the Old Testament. And these are the principles that we find in Scripture. It's more so outlined in Deuteronomy, and I'm not going to take the time to read that tonight of what that looks like, but these are the principles that come out of this and that we clearly see here in Exodus. Number one, no standing army is allowed. All right? (laughs) A little different, I think, when people try to use this idea of holy war against a different people group is number one is no standing army was allowed. That every time they were to fight a war against another people group, they had to go and get soldiers and find them. Okay? That's number one. No pay for soldiers was permitted. There was no soldier. There was no such thing as a soldier in Israel. And they weren't paid for it. Three, no personal spoil or plunder could be taken. 
As we just read about the Amalekites and any nation around the Israelites, that when they would go and they would fight, that they would take all the stuff. They'd take the gold. It happens when they're in the Babylonian captivity. They, they go into the temple. They take all the gold they can possibly find. Right? They, they, it makes them richer to attack another people group, and that's why people did it. That's not why Israel did it in the Old Testament under holy war. No personal spoil and plunder could be taken. Number four, holy war could be fought only for the conquest or defense of the promised land. Israel had no right to any other land or to warfare for any other purpose. The only time that God said, yes, go and attack these people was only when they were trying to get into the promised land, into Canaan, or when somebody was attacking them while they were there. And we see that there's really strong negative repercussions when King David says, I want to put an army together. The entire book of Numbers talks about this, and he counts his army and counts how many soldiers. Why? Because he's thinking, how big can I make my empire? And God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you three choices, and they're all going to be really bad. And David chooses pestilence for three days on his people, and thousands of Israelites lose their lives because King David didn't obey the principles of holy war outlined in Deuteronomy. Number five, only at Yahweh's call could holy war be launched. That's interesting. Only God himself could say, I want you to go fight these people. Not King David, not King Saul, nobody. Only God could do it, and he did it, in point six, solely through a prophet. All right, so I don't, I, the king shows up and says, hey, God came to me in a vision, God came to me in a dream, and I'm declaring war on so-and-so. Nope. We see this with Saul kind of doing this a little bit, that he goes and performs the duty of a priest, and he loses his ability to be king anymore. Says the Holy Spirit leaves him, and he's no longer going to be in line to be king. At least his, his uh, children won't be anymore only through a prophet, and Moses was indeed and always for sure a prophet. Number seven, Yahweh did the real fighting in the holy war because the war was always his. God did the fighting, and we're going to see, see why that's very clear. Number eight, war was a religious undertaking involving forms of self-denial. All right, this was going from, and we get into Deuteronomy, even from, from abstaining from sex and even abstaining from food and fasting. Now listen, I, I've never fought in war, not even close. Uh, the only, maybe like a, a football game, right, getting in, the, getting in the trenches and the gridiron is maybe the closest thing I can say. And I can tell you right now, if I fasted for a few days before a football game, I probably actually would have died on the field. Right? You, in order to, to get your strength and your stamina, you don't fast. And that is why God can say, yeah, I, I did that. You, you could hardly walk that day. And I provided a victory. Number nine, the goal of holy war was the total victory and obliteration of an evil culture. We kind of mentioned this already. It's a people groups that want to destroy God's plan of redemption. Verse, or, sorry, not verse 10, uh, point 10. These are not verses. It's not the Bible. They're just principles from the Bible. The violator of the rules of the holy war become an enemy. All right, I already talked about a few of those examples. There's another one of, of, of Achan. And when Achan, he is a, a, a man Israelite, 
They go to war, and you know what he does? He decides to hide and steal a little bit of, of gold and some, and some fine linens from somebody. That's it. He hides it, buries it under his tent. Israelites go out to fight another holy war, and they start to lose. And they come back, and they say, whoa, 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 there's sin in the camp. Somebody broke the rules. Who did it? And nobody fesses up, right? So they cast lots. They, all right, they say, okay, uh, this half of the church, that half of the camp, roll a die. Okay, it's this half. Okay, is it this or this? Roll a die. Okay, it's in here, front, back. And then finally it gets down, and sure enough, Aiken's like, okay, I did it. I'm like, yeah, you, you need to die, and all of your family needs to die. Right? There, there, there are consequences to what you have done to God's people. That you have hindered the plan of God's redemption rather than help it. They were treated as the enemy. Point 11, exceptions and mutilations are possible, especially in the case of combat with those who were not original inhabitants of the promised land. So that would be like the Amalekites who didn't necessarily live there, but they were just trying to destroy the Israelites. 12, decisive and rapid victory characterized faithful holy war. It was always clearly God's hand in the war. That human beings and their warfare and their tactics meant nothing when it came to holy war. It was clearly God all the time. Let me just read a couple quotes um, about this as well. So just bear with me as I read these. It is certainly true that God in the Old Testament exhibits wrath. But we must keep two things in mind. One, God shows his wrath against the nations because they are accepting to get in the way of his redemptive plan. Israel is not just another nation. This tiny people is the vehicle God has chosen through which he will redeem humanity and all of creation. That Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, is going to come from that people group. Israel's redemption is phase one of that redemptive plan. And thus he guards that plan with jealousy. I admit that this does not solve the problem entirely. For example, why could God not simply bring the other nations along and increase understanding of himself rather than destroy them? I don't know. Or why could he not have made the Amalekites favorably disposed toward the Israelites, been an ally, fought for them, and avoided the conflicts altogether? I do not know. But at the very least, we should try to understand God's extreme behavior in this context of redemption as a whole. Sometimes the only way we can accept reason for why God acts as he does is by faith. Number two, it is false to think that the God of the Old Testament, even in terms, should be repulsive to Christian as a God of wrath. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. Whereas the God of the New Testament is one of grace and patience. Even a surface reading of the Bible puts such a notion to rest. The Old Testament is replete with evidence of God's patience and grace with the nations, including providing manna for his grumbling people. Moreover, the New Testament is hardly devoid of God's wrath. His plan to destroy the enemies of his people is no less apparent there. In fact, from a certain perspective, the intensity increases. We don't see the walls of Jericho toppling or godless people dropping like flies but we do see the power of Satan, the true enemy of God and his people, crumbling daily. God's warring activity is now directed at him full blast. The victory has been secured and the resurrection of Christ, at the resurrection of Christ and will be completed at his second coming. 
So I want to focus on this. I just want to read some verses of Jesus already won the war. Okay, so if we, if we look at what happened, why would God do holy war against these other nations? Because these nations specifically were trying to thwart God's plan. We're specifically trying to destroy God's plan of redemption for all humanity, not just one little ethnic group. And God says, I can't allow that. And so Jesus steps on the scene and he destroys the ultimate enemy of God and says, I've got this and I've already won it and I've provided the victory for my people. And if we think about just what we, a couple weeks ago and all they need to do is believe. I want to read Matthew, um, a couple verses here in Matthew. It says, then they, they brought him, the, the people brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? As a, a name for the Messiah. Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? Is this God's plan of redemption? But when the Pharisees, the preachers, when the religious leaders heard this, they said, this is only Beelzebul. This is Satan. All right, it's another name for Satan. This is Satan, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Satan, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm doing this, if I'm casting out Satan by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come. I'm here. Then he says this in verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions? All right, so he's giving a little, little tip here if you want to be a thief or a robber. Okay, he's giving a little, little tip here. Okay, if you want to thieve somebody, it's not a word, but we're going to roll with that. How do you do it? How do you steal their possessions? Well, at first you have to enter their house and then you have to bind them. You have to tie them up. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? And then he can plunder his house. And there's a whole lot more that I could say here about Jesus Christ binding the strong man when he's on the cross. And I'm going to do that in a couple other ways. Uh, one here is just going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3.15. This is the curse that God puts on Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, more plural. And then he switches to singular, and he, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's going to be a fight, but you, Satan, are the strong man, and he's going to bind you. And if you get to Revelation chapter 21, talking about Satan being bound, it says that he no longer has dominion over the nations. He no longer has power to deceive the nations. Why? Because Christ already won the victory, and because the gospel is the answer to all of our problems. Colossians 3 says this, when you were dead and in your sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. You went from death to life in Christ. He forgave all of your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Who did it? He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having 
uh, what's he saying here? Disarmed the powers and authorities. He's bound them. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. How? By the cross. That is how Jesus wins. And again, in Matthew, he says this, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, all of it. Satan doesn't have any more authority. All of the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, now what? Go and make disciples to how many people? All nations, because it's not just about Israel anymore, baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, so who are we fighting this war against? Is there still holy war? The answer is yes and no, because Jesus won it. So who is our holy war against? Is it a physical holy war? Is it something that could be so bad as an American that we need to go bear arms to go fight against the powers of evil? I would say no, especially not holy war. We just read that holy war. There's no such thing as holy war in the world anymore, and it hasn't been since Jesus died on the cross. So is it a physical thing? I, I, I thought of this uh, when I played football. The school I went to was called Maranatha. Maranatha is Hebrew for come Lord Jesus, right? Come quickly, Lord. And uh, there's, a, there's a rap song I'd listen to to pump me up. Maranatha, come and get me. Maranatha, come and get me uh, before these games. And, and, and so my, my, my coach used to, uh, that's the, I'm the skinny guy, number 81 there. That my coach used to, used to get in our faces, right? And he would say, let them read, Maranatha. Just come at them and hit them, right? And it's like, yeah, I don't, that's not what Maranatha means, right? It's not a physical battle in football. Uh, I get what you're trying to say here, but it doesn't work, right? It's not a physical battle. I think a better way to ask the question is, <coughs> this got really dizzy. A second. <laughs> Ah, so much for taking it easy, huh? Better way to ask the question is, who are the Amalekites in our lives? Because I think if you ask it that way, if you look at who are the powers of evil against God's plan in my life, I'm telling you right now, it's not your neighbor, right? It's not the upstairs neighbors stomping around. It's not your roommate coming back late at night, not locking the door, right? It's not your spouse. It's not even the, the other political party. It's not who it is. Who's the Amalekite in my life? Do I have an enemy like that? C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a phenomenal book. Um, has incredible insight into what it's like to fight this spiritual battle, to fight this, this holy war that's not physical. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. Um, just, just bear with me. This is a chapter, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it's coming from chapter two. The, the preface here, preface, the premise is that uh, Screwtape is uh, a, a demon. He's kind of a, a, a chief or a captain in the demon world. And so he's going to use language like the enemy, and the enemy actually means God. It means heavenly realm, not our realm. He's going to say our father down below. He's talking about Satan. Okay, so he's a captain of the demons, and in, and as in, and as C.S. Lewis kind of imagined this, that we kind of it's not true, but people talk about these guardian angels, right? That that I've got this guardian angel on my shoulder. Well, I've also got this guardian demon, and this demon is doing everything that he can possibly do to keep me from worshiping God. And so this uncle Screwtape is writing his nephew Wormwood. 
And Wormwood has a client, has a patient is what he calls him, this human being that he's doing everything he can to stop him from worshiping Yahweh. So I want to read here, chapter, part, start of chapter 2, and Uncle Screwtape says this, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Okay, so in the first chapter, he's just a human that he's attached to, and now he sees this man has become a Christian, he's become a believer. He says, do not indulge the hope that you will escape the unusual penalties, right, because you allowed this to happen. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would have hardly even wished to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best for the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All of the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of the greatest allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished, sham Gothic towers to where a new building estate could be. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face bustling up to him to offer a shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in a very small print. Right, get them fixated on the little nuances here that will just drive him bonkers. When he goes to his pew and looks around him and sees that selection of his neighbors whom you had hitherto avoided, you want to learn lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, make it his mind to flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and then their actual faces in the pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people in the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool, provided that any one of those neighbors sings out of tune, or has boots that squeak, or a double chin, or odd clothes. The patient will quite easily behave or, or believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At this present age, you can see he has an idea of Christian in his mind, which he is supposed to be spiritual, but which, in fact, is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that other people in the church wear modern clothes is a real, though, of course, an unconscious difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he actually expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. What is Lewis getting at? He's saying the war is not with my neighbor. It's not with some other party. It's not with some army. It's a war within myself against sin. It could, be, it could be anything. It could be the way that I responded to uh, my wife selfishly. 
It could be, it could be the way that I, I treat a roommate or my child. These little things, the way that I, I, I neglect prayer, that I say it's not a big deal and it's sin that I need to fight. So there is holy war, but it's not a physical war anymore. It is a spiritual war. Paul says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. And he lists this armor, and it's, again, not a physical thing. It's a, it's a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. Luke 10, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? And the teacher answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to share this parable of the good Samaritan, of this person who you would view as your, your, your enemy. He is a, a half-breed. He's half-Jew, half-Gentile. He's, he's helpless and worthless in society. That's your neighbor because it's not physical anymore. Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, this is Jesus saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for the Amalekites. Pray for the person who I can't stand that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain, the righteous and the unrighteous. One last quote, and we'll get into application. It says this, the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. Christ has triumphed over Satan. As the Christmas hymn, Break Forth, O Beauteous Heavenly Light. I don't know that song. Does anyone know that song? I'm not familiar with that one. Puts it. The power of Satan breaking, our peace eternal making, yet, as we all know, despite the fact that Satan has lost and the battle rages on every moment we spend on this earth, it is within the grand spiritual perspective that our daily battles must be viewed. Our battles, as Paul said, are against powers and authorities, against spiritual uh, figures who intend on making us fit for darkness rather than light. We are at a war daily, so as good soldiers, we must be on guard, and we don't do it alone. And he talks about stand guard and, and, and holding on to the shield, and, and in, in Roman times, their shields would interlock with the people standing next to them. They couldn't fight a war on their own, and neither can you. Reminded me of, of D-Day. Um, uh, I'm not, I'm, I may be a little bit of a, of a World War II buff. I don't know if it buff is the right word, but D-Day was on uh, June 6, 1944. And uh, maybe you know the story, but this is when uh, the Nazi regime had already taken over completely all of France. And the United States and and the Allies, the Canadians and the English and the French, well, kind of the French, they, they stormed the beach, right? And what happens on that moment, it's D-Day. The war is over. The United States and the Allies had, had gained a foot ground. The battle was won. But yet the actual victory didn't happen until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, which was May 8th, 45, 11 months later. In other words, the war was won back then, but it wasn't completed until later. 
And that's exactly where we're at. We've used this language here before of this already, not yet. I live in the already. I'm already God's child. I've already, he's already won the victory. Satan is bound. He won. But yet I fight this battle continually, not against flesh and blood. So again, three observations that we learn from the passage that I think that apply to us is the battle belongs to the Lord. It's his battle. As read from Colossians, he did it. He killed it. And there is holy war, but it's a spiritual war. And we need to worship and never forget. We need to have these Ebenezers. We need to look at what is in our life that I can remember where God has won the battle for me. And we do that by coming to church every week. We do that by singing these amazing old hymns where the print isn't too tiny. I don't think. Nobody's complained to me about that yet. Uh, and we remember through communion where we get to remember this banner, this Ebenezer of what Christ has done. So just in closing, who is your neighbor? I think we, we tend to do this and we, again, we, we, we visualize people and we even say, who is your enemy? Do I have any enemies right now? And we, we try to think of people and it's not. There is no person who is your enemy, your Amalekite that you need to wipe off the face of the earth. They don't exist. Maybe you just need to share the gospel with them. How are you fighting sin in light of V, sorry, in light of D-Day? Should be D-Day, not V-Day. That got confusing. How are you fighting sin? Because like I said before, you don't do it alone. There wasn't one soldier storming the beach in Normandy. There was thousands of them. Can't do it alone. We need to fight and fight and fight together and remind ourselves that Pharaoh is drowned and it is God who won the war. And never forget. Don't forget what Christ did. I'm going to go ahead and ask the, the worship team to go ahead and make their way up here now as we get ready to, to worship and singing of, of song uh, and hymns and spiritual songs that we can lift up our voice to the creator of the earth and that we can, in the moment, look at these lyrics and think, man, God, there was people who were killed because of this. But yet, God, you did that in order to secure your redemptive plan for all mankind. So God, thank you. I don't, I don't understand it. I can't begin to wrap my head around that, but man, if there's one thing I've learned from studying scripture and living for 32 years in this world, it's that God is good. And any time I have these thoughts, I always go back to but Jesus. He saved me. So will we never forget, as we take these elements, we'd ask anybody, if you just follow Jesus to come, take these elements with us. There's a gluten-free option with, and regular bread on the left side over here. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. Um, thank you that you're good. I thank you that we can come to you, and even with difficult questions, and that you can show up with grace and with love and compassion to us in our questions. And then there are times where you show up in a cloud and in a, in a whirlwind like you did to Job and say, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And that we look at you, the God of the universe, who is full of power and holiness and unapproachable light. And you say, I want to live with you. I want to dwell with you. And the only way I can do that is by providing my son for you. So God, we lift up our voices 
as we boldly approach the throne of grace, that we can come before you now without hesitation, without fear of being struck down like Moses on Mount Sinai. God, I thank you for all you've done and all you will do. Thank you for giving me the strength to get through this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.